This episode is sponsored by ByHeart. And I feel like I need to preface what I'm going to say with this. I'm a huge advocate of breastfeeding. Anyone who knows me well knows that nursing is something I believe in. And all five of our biological children were breastfed until they were 19 to 23 months old. However, we also have fostered and adopted, and I've been so grateful for formula companies in those situations. I'm also grateful for formula companies because our last two biological children, I really struggled with my supply and did all the things, spent so much time and effort, and just was never able to produce enough for them to be able to gain weight and not be hungry. And so I was so grateful for companies like Byheart. Byheart is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. Using the latest in breast milk science, Byheart created a clinically proven, easy to digest infant formula that's made with organic, grass-fed whole milk, certified clean ingredients, and features a patented protein blend that gets closest to breast milk. They're made with certified clean ingredients. It has no soy, corn syrup, GMOs, or palm oil. Curious about Byheart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com forward slash podcast with code crystal for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. So go to byheart.com forward slash podcast and use crystal to get your welcome offer. Amwar makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Amwar, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for new-to-use styles. Now, I mentioned on the podcast recently that I have been pregnant or breastfeeding for four and a half years, and that season of my life came to a close recently, and I was like, I forgot I can wear normal clothes again that don't need to be breastfeeding friendly or constantly changing in sizes with a postpartum body. And so now I'm left with trying to figure out, well, what do I wear? What is my style? I can't even remember. And styles have changed so much in the last few years. And so I've been having fun experimenting with different types of clothing. And I love that Amoir has allowed me to try some different styles of jeans and kind of step outside my comfort zone and figure out what I love, what works for my body type, and to not have spent money on things that I was like, "Mm, actually, this doesn't work after I wore it a few times and realized I don't really like it. And so it's been a great opportunity for me to try out some new things and help me to define my personal style. And I also love that the style quiz, the different suggestions that they gave after I took the style quiz, it was right in line with what I would want to wear. And so I have just loved this service and I would love for you to get to try it out and get a great deal. Right now, my listeners can give Amoir a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit amoir.style forward slash crystal. That is amoir.style 
A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash crystal to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Amoir today. Welcome to the Crystal Pain Show, where we help you embrace your life right where you are and give you practical steps to get to where you want to go. Whether you are in your car, folding laundry, cooking, cleaning, or maybe even just enjoying a cup of coffee and a few minutes of quiet, we're so glad you're joining us today. Here's your host, wife, mother of four, foster mom, entrepreneur, and author, Crystal Payne. Welcome to another episode of The Crystal Payne Show. Y'all, it is our 100th episode. I cannot believe that. And we have a very special episode for you today because Sissy Goff is in studio. We had to reschedule this once and I have been so looking forward to getting to talk to you about your book, Raising Worry-Free Girls. And the subtitle is Helping Your Daughter Feel Braver, Stronger, and Smarter in an Anxious World. And this could not be more appropriate for the time that we are living in. I mean, it's, it's timeless. People struggle with anxiety all the time, but especially right now, I'm hearing from so many parents who they're just at their wits end. They do not know how to navigate all the newness and the abnormal and the difficulty and just the struggles. And it's causing a lot of trauma in their home Mm -hmm. and their children. I just heard from one mom today, you know, just saying like, it's so overwhelming. I don't know what to do. And it feels like there aren't any, any choice you make, the repercussions, it's just hard to know as a parent. And then at the same time, you know, as your children are getting older and they're walking through all of this and you're wondering, how is this going to impact them? And so I think as parents, we have a lot of worry. And then we see our children having all this worry. And it's like, what do we do with this? So first, before we get into all of that, I'd love for you to just take a minute, Sissy, and introduce yourself to my audience. Well, I'm so honored to be on your 100th episode. That's so (laughs) exciting. So my name is Sissy Goff, and I am a counselor at Daystar Counseling Ministries, where I have been counseling girls and families for 27 years now. I know it's a, a little bit of time, and I love that work I get to do, and feel so um, just privileged to sit with kids and families every day. And and out of that work, have had the other privilege of getting to write and speak some about what I'm learning from them, and and it is changing. I mean, it was changing so much pre-pandemic, and mm-hmm. so now it feels like we're just in this whole new territory that is so anxiety ridden. And you're right. I mean, it's just, I think it's crippling kids and parents. And Mm -hmm. so to be able to help, I I just love being able to step into that place. Mm. And you wrote this book, Raising Worry-Free Girls. And I'm curious, you you didn't say raising worry-free kids. So why specifically did you just focus on girls in this book? Well, it's kind of a funny story, even of how the book came to be. I with my colleagues and dear friends, Dave Thomas and Melissa Trevathan, we had written a book called Are My Kids on Track? And there was a section in it when I talked about anxiety in girls. And pre-pandemic, I can tell you the new statistics in a minute, but the pre-pandemic, we were one in four kids were dealing with anxiety and girls were twice as likely. Mm. And so our editor reached out and said, 
hey, would you be willing to write a book for girls, young girls, because the average age of onset was eight. Now it's dropped to six, Mm. which is just tragic. And so he said, would you write a book on anxiety for girls? And at first I said, no. And then I said, actually, I will if I can write a book for parents too, Mm. because it is not just a problem for the child. It's a problem for the whole family. And so girls, for that reason, because they're definitely leading the statistics, but as we teach, and even in our counseling offices, whenever we're teaching skills to kids, we're bringing the parents in and teaching those same skills, not only so they can prompt the kids, but because if as a parent, you have anxiety, your kids are seven times more likely to deal with it themselves. And again, that's pre-pandemic. And now mm-hmm. we're all anxious to some degree. I don't, I don't know that there's anyone out there who's not. Mm-hmm. And so I think kids are just picking it up so much. So it felt very important to speak to girls and parents. And so let's dig into that a little bit more. You talked about it's not just the girls. It's also the parents. Do you see that most parents recognize that it's that some of it can be stemming from some of their actions and approach? A lot now, I would Mm -hmm. say yes, because I think we have become more aware as a culture. And I think... The generations of parents are much younger than I am now. And so they're they're more aware, I mm-hmm. think. But I still sit with parents. And I think a lot of us, you're a lot younger than I am, Crystal, but a lot of us had parents who never went to counseling, mm-hmm. never took us to counseling. And so I think a lot of people who are parents now are living with anxiety and don't know that's what it is. Mm. I mean, I really jokingly, and I can say this about myself because it's true, but I think any of us who are type A, I don't know if you're type A. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think any of us who are type A, we grew up probably anxious and that's Mm -hmm. how we learned to deal with it. We didn't have a name for it. And, and so we moved into our greatest coping strategy was control. Mm. And that just makes us feel okay. And so, I, I mean, I sit with a lot of parents who say, I have anxiety. I feel like it's rippling over. I don't want it to. What can I do? And then I sat with someone last week and and you know, when you sit with someone who's really anxious, it feels palpable in the room. Mm-hmm. And the sweet mom was trying so hard with her daughter and her anxiety felt palpable. And mm-hmm. and I usually try to really softball it. And I'll say, so I'm just curious, is there any family history for anxiety? And she said, no, we have none at all. <laughs> but okay, we're going to have to take a few steps back and go slow with this. So I, I think it's both. Mm-hmm. And would you say in every case and maybe... You know, like asking a question that's like, you don't want to be pinned down on this. But in in every case, when your child has anxiety, some way, somehow, some form, shape or form, it has stemmed from something in the parent. Or do you feel like it's possible that it can be? Okay, I definitely feel like I meet with parents who it doesn't feel connected at all. And sometimes it's from trauma. I mean, that Mm. definitely can create anxiety. And I mean, if I meet with parents now. I, I don't I'm afraid to say black and white on this, but I think if I meet with parents whose oldest child is a girl, I would say I'm 85% sure that girl is going to have some degree of anxiety or anxiety that shows up as perfectionism, which mm-hmm. I think it's again, it's the same thing. So I, I think it I think culturally we're in such a different place. And I read this great quote uh by a psychologist who talked about how We've never been in a place where girls care more about Mm. trying to get things right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, grades in particular, and boys care less. Mm. And so I 
I, I think girls are just living with this sense of pressure in all areas. And they're, t- I mean, I have kids in my office all the time who 100 is not enough. You know, they're going for 102 and 104 and, you know, just all these different places that they feel like they have to be perfect. I hear about personal records and track all the time and little girls who are feeling it by second and third grade. You know, there's just so much pressure. And again, I think even when parents, I sit with a lot of parents who will say things like, our daughter is trying so hard. She's so hard on herself when she makes mistakes or makes a grade that's not an A plus, And we don't care. Mm-hmm. It's not coming mm-hmm. from us. But I think that's that child who has that inner critic, if we were going to talk about the Enneagram, has that inner critic that's pushing themselves so hard. And so what do you say to those parents who their child is feeling that pressure? Because I, I 100% agree. I mean, my daughters are 15 and 13. And mm. so I am around watching it. girls, yes. you know, and, and I was just talking with one of their friends recently who she was, you know, telling me how she had to get these certain grades. And I looked at her and I said, are your parents asking that of you? She said, oh, no, it's just really important to me. Mm. What do you say to those those parents and to those girls? Like, how, how do we navigate that? Because it's hard. Well, I think one of the best things we can do is start really young mm-hmm. because, the you know, we could talk about brain and science for a long time, but we create these neural pathways, these well-worn paths in our brain. And so, I mean, one of the things when I was writing these books, I read 23 books on anxiety because <laughs> I just wanted to be really well-versed. And I learned so many great things that had been true in counseling, and I don't think I put words to it. But one of them was that anxiety left untreated only gets worse. Mm. And so the longer it goes, the more entrenched it gets. But I would say, I mean, one of the huge things I think we can do with kids who live that way is to play with them a lot. Mm. I think we need to be spending time with them where we're not teaching them or correcting them or pressing in on them about a certain thing, but we're just enjoying them. Mm. I think it's really important. And I, I talk to parents all the time with perfectionistic kids. I did, I think, three times this week with parent consults where we were talking about how important it is for parents to fail in front of their kids to talk about, I did the dumbest thing at work today, or I can't believe I dropped the ball on this, or I hurt my friend's feelings. I mean, whatever it is like that. And to do things together as a family. I told a family yesterday to go to a batting cage that none of them play baseball, you know, but it's like, you just need to do things that are hard together and mess up in front of them and laugh when you do. Because kids who are perfectionistic, I mean, we don't know how to laugh at ourselves. And I think the more we can start that early, the less there's that tightness that they live with, that we live with into adulthood. I just think that can make such a difference. That's so profound. I love that playing with your kids. It's you're convicting me right now. I think, you know, what are we doing in our week that we're just having fun and there's no standard you have to. And, and I love how you said, you know, go to a batting cage when none of you are good, you know, because I feel like then there's just going to be so much laughter. Like we're right. all going to be bad blow at it. it. We all need to blow it. Yes. And so many kids who are perfectionistic won't do things unless they do them well. Mm. So even talking about learning and that in learning, we fail all the time. So how do you get a child who doesn't want to do something because they they have a pretty good idea they're going to fail? How do you kind of push them to do that if they're very resistant? Well, there are probably a lot of different ways I could go with that. I mean, I do think it's always good with kids to talk about effort rather than outcome. I mean, I think that's just a good mantra to have with every child over there growing up. And then 
something I have been telling parents to do a lot lately is to, and and this works, I mean, it probably works great for all ages, but especially younger ones to reward not just bravery, but flexibility. Mm-hmm. And because I think bravery also is flexible because an anxious kid doesn't know how to be flexible. You know, Mm -hmm. they have this plan, which we can talk about how it shows up, too, because that's often part of it. But so, you know, if you have a younger child to come up with an idea where you're going to do something like have a jar in their room where it's very visible to them and they collect bravery beads or pom poms or something Mm -hmm. fun like that. And anytime they do something like, you know, I was talking with this family yesterday about their daughter is playing soccer and tennis. She's great at soccer. She's not any good at tennis. And so we talked about really praising her just as much for both. And I think anytime they go to practice at something they don't do well with to say, you got a bravery bead, you know, and also when you say we have to run an errand after school and they don't melt down, you give them a bravery bead. And when they do something they're afraid of, all of those things, I'm I'm a big fan of rewards that you can give when you notice and feel motivated rather than some chart that they're trying to tick mm-hmm. off because so often those are hard to keep up with mm-hmm. and cause more stress for the parent. So we probably have a lot of parents listening who they feel this sense of, I don't know, like I think they seem like they're anxious, mm-hmm. but how do I know that my child is struggling with anxiety or maybe this is just normal? Yes. Well, and you know, it's, it looks different with different ages, which is one of the reasons that it's sometimes hard to recognize. And the way that, well, emotionally, I think the way it shows up first is often as anger. Because if your child is, you know, watching a show at night before bedtime and all of a sudden you say, okay, it's time to go upstairs and brush your teeth. And they didn't know that that was what was about to happen. They can just fall apart with a whole lot of anger or coming in from school, like I said, you change the plan, all of a sudden they just melt down in anger or start yelling at you. I met with a family this week who said, the mom said, her chair in the car, when she picks her daughter up from school, if she moves her chair, like scoots Mm -hmm. it back an inch, her daughter just loses it and screams at her. And it's change. It's unpredictability. And so that is a trigger, a big trigger for kids. And, And they don't know how to say, you just changed my environment or you changed my schedule without any warning and it makes me anxious. Mm-hmm. They don't have those words. And so the emotion that's most readily available is anger. And so I sit with a lot of parents who are really frustrated with their kids and say things like they're just exploding all the time or they're really manipulative because it feels like they're not getting what they wanted mm-hmm. when really it's just things changed on them and that what they wanted was more of what they expected than what they wanted. Mm. And so I I always say to parents, it's so good to look underneath the behavior and even pay attention to, I would journal meltdowns. What was happening before? What's going on around the child? What could be triggers there? Because, I mean, especially young kids want to please their parents. And so if they're melting down, there's usually more to it. So that's one thing I would say, watch for that. Also, I always say to kids, it's like the one loop roller coaster at the fair. And so what happens is there's something that gets stuck in their head. They're really worried about being away from you is often the first way we see it. And then what typically happens in a family is that it passes. It eventually just passes and they kind of wear themselves out of it. And so the parents will think, 
is this a problem? Is this normal? And then by the time they start to think, I don't think this is normal, it goes away. And then it pops up as, as I was, I talked to a family this week who said they saw, their daughter saw someone throw up and she can't stop talking about throwing up. And every time her tummy gets a little fluttery, she thinks, I'm going to throw up, I'm going to throw up. And she gets really obsessive about it. And that is, you know, which is strange. Throwing up is one of the most common things we see kids in counseling about that they loop mm. about. And so it's basically something like that. It's kind of the worst thing they can imagine developmentally. Mm. Then it becomes fears about embarrassing themselves in front of their friends. We have a lot of kids who are looping now about suicide. Mm. And, you know, they're not necessarily kids who've ever even thought about it for themselves, but they've heard about it for the first time. And how terrifying to hear about that. And so Mm -hmm. they get mad and all of a sudden think, does that mean I want to kill myself? Oh, no, I want to kill myself. I want to kill myself. And that's really not what's going on. Although I would say if your child ever says that, take them to a counselor. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, anything scary like that, they just get stuck. So if you feel like your child is perseverating around any idea or if you feel like they're asking repetitive questions, you know, where are you going? When are you going to be home? Who's going to be here with me? Wait, what am I going to be doing? How can I talk to you while you're gone? You know, if you're just hearing endless questions, we say to parents, don't answer more than five questions about the same topic because it's not helpful to them. And that's one of the biggest mistakes parents make often, which we can come back to that too. But but I think those are probably the predominant ways families see it and kids often go statistically two years before they ever get help. But the great news is that there are really practical things you can do to help and your kids can do to fight it where maybe you don't even have to go to counseling. I mean, there's really, that's why I wrote this book to keep families out of counseling. And sometimes when families call Daystar, we'll say, read this book first. And if you still need to come, come in for counseling. Well, and that's one thing I loved about your book. I was telling you before the interview is that it isn't, you're a counselor, but you're not saying you should just take your kid to counseling. And I think, (laughs) I think a lot of times that's kind of the default. And I would strongly encourage families get a copy of Raising Worry-Free Girls, because I love how you walk through all of these different tools that we can give our kids and that we can have as parents to really help our kids walk through it. And it might be that it's just a, it's, it's a small thing, but right. they kind of have made it into this big thing. And if we just can implement a few tools, it is, you know, really helps make a difference. Or we might figure out, whoa, this is much bigger than we realized. And so your book is really great to help parents with that and give a lot of practical tools. And so speaking of practical tools, when a parent, so they're listening and they're like, "Ah, I resonate with that. That is my child. What are some first steps that they should take then? So they recognize that there's this anxiety that's going on, maybe coming out as anger. What do they do then? So the first three things I do in my office every time is we well, and in the book, we talk about attacking it from the body and the brain and the heart Mm because it comes after kids. It comes after us on all three of those levels. And so the first one before kids can do anything, we need to have them deep breathe, which is, you know, mindfulness. I mean, I think that can sound kind of hokey to people, but it really does make a difference. And, and part of what happens, and I know you know this, and a lot of you know this that are listening, but when any of us start to get anxious, our sympathetic nervous system kicks into gear, which God designed our bodies that way for survival. And so our blood flow shifts in our brain and it shifts away from the prefrontal cortex, which helps us think rationally and manage our emotions. 
and it goes to the amygdala, which is the fight or flight part of our brain. And so when I sit with parents who say, my child is acting like a crazy person, absolutely they are, because the part of their brain that helps them not be crazy is not even getting blood. So it's Mm -hmm. like it's gone offline. And I think, again, when you talk about having compassion for what's going on, that helps parents so much see underneath the behavior like They really can't help it in those moments. And so even when we're saying, go to your room when they're in that kind of place, that's not helpful. Or when we get angry with them, this doesn't make sense. Stop it. You know, it just activates the amygdala even more. And so 20 seconds of deep breathing resets the amygdala. That's all it takes for the blood vessels of the brain to dilate again and to shift the blood back. And so the way that I do it with kids is I call it square breathing with girls. Now, the guys on staff, David Thomas calls it combat breathing with boys because it sounds cooler. And he also would say, I forgot to say this, that the Raising Worry Free Girls is all the tools we use with boys too. Mm. So if you have a boy, you can get the book as well. But so what you would do is you'd put your hand on your leg and you would draw a square. And there's another reason I love this way to do it too that I'll tell you in a minute. But with each line of the square, you breathe a different way and then pause in the corner for three seconds. So it's pause pause and then over and over and over for 20 seconds. And that literally is going to calm their body back down to where they can get back to rational thoughts. So we start there to calm them down. And then we would move to what are called grounding techniques. And that's a cognitive behavioral therapy technique, which is the most widely researched type of therapy for anxiety. And so Again, they're in that loop. They've calmed their body back down, but their brain is still looping. And so we want to do anything basically that requires a lot of focus and anything sensory related helps them focus, which is why I like the drawing on the leg because that's sensory. It's tactile. But my favorite one is five, four, three, two, one, where and I do this with kids a lot where I'll sit in my office and I'll say, tell me five things you see right now. And they'll look around and tell you five things. Tell me four things you hear that requires a little more focus. Three things you feel with your finger, you know, your soft jeans, whatever. Two things you smell, one thing you taste. And you have to stop and really tune into the moment. And and anybody who's listening who's had anxiety or who has it currently knows you just kind of spin off into the atmosphere. You're not living in the moment. And so that kind of technique helps bring you back to a central place. And so that's my favorite one. You also can do, tell me everything you see that's the color blue. Tell me every letter, every word you can think of that starts with the letter P. You know, I mean, anything like that. I have older kids count backwards from 100 by sevens, which takes a lot of focus for (laughs) any of us. Um, But something that's just requiring a lot of focus because that's going to get them out of the loop. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things, again, that in the beginning, you're going to have to walk them through this and they're not going to be motivated. So when you see them doing their breathing, when you hear them doing a grounding technique, Give them a brave beat Mm. because they're practicing it. And then the third thing is, I think one of the most important things we can do is to name the worry. Because, you know, whatever voice we have in our heads, we all have voices in our heads, not from a scary standpoint, but we just have voices in our heads that tell us things. And and any of us who don't understand that's what's happening think they're true. Mm. Kids especially think that voice is true that says, you're going to fail you are a failure. You're not enough. I sat with a group of ninth and 10th graders last week, and we all talked about the voice in our heads. And that's the voice they hear the most. You're not enough, which I just hate. And so we named those voices. I did with that group of girls. And you can do it any way you want to. In the the little girl's book, I call it the worry monster. 
And then I have a book for high school girls coming out in February called Brave mm-hmm. and called it The Worry Whisperer because that's what it feels like. It just whispers, kind of drops these things into their brains. And so starting with the worry monster, but then letting them come up with their own name, I think makes it more fun and they're more engaged in the process. And so that way, what we do is we do the breathing, we do the grounding, and then we do talking back to the worry monster. And so they can learn to say, you're not the boss of me. I'm not listening to you. You're wrong. Um, I have a lot of little kids who can say things like stupid to their worry monster that they're not allowed <laughs> to say to anyone else. And and adolescent girls, you know, I had another girl say to a friend and group last week, she just said, we're not going there. You're wrong. You are dead wrong. And we're not listening to you. You have no power over mm. us to her friend about her worry monster, which I loved. And so I think it separates it out and takes away its power for them to do that. And then for you as the parent, I was saying one of the biggest mistakes, it's it's called the content trap. And what normally happens is you see your child in distress and you try to talk them out of it. No, you're not going to throw up. Nothing's wrong with you right now. You're fine. You know you're not going to throw up. That's not even helpful because it's never about the thing. It's about anxiety and that that's hijacked their brain in the moment. And so when you can say as a parent, sounds like the worry monster's back to me. You know, that helps again. It shifts it away from them. And and the same tools work no matter how anxiety morphs. And so you can say, what tell me what you did last time, because the same tools are going to work. So then they can say, oh, that's right. I did breathing and I did grounding and I talked back to him. What do you want to say back? But we just don't fall into that trap with them that they're going to obviously give a lot of legitimacy to. And we can stop that. Those are such practical ideas. I really, really appreciate it. And I was also thinking with the breathing as parents, you know, teaching our kids those skills and then doing them with them. Yeah, we need it too. We do need it too. Because we can start as our kids are spinning out and, you know, having all these, you know, they start freaking out about things. We can do the same thing inside because we're freaking out about our child freaking out. And so for us both (laughs) to just stop. And do that breathing together, it's going to help us be able to parent them from a much healthier space as well. Absolutely. And and what happens is the more the amygdala takes over, the more likely it is to take over. It develops Mm -hmm. a hair trigger response and actually enlarges. And so I'm telling kids and families even to breathe when they're not anxious, like Mm -hmm. to preventatively be doing that. And, you know, so many of us have smartwatches today and they have ways to do it. And Two apps I love. One is called Calm or Calm Kids app. And then another one's Headspace. And that gives Mm -hmm. some practical places to do it too. One of the things that you talk about in your book that I think is really, really important is this concept of as parents, we want to come in and rescue our kids. We, We just, we don't want them to struggle. We don't want them to go through hard things in life. We we would really love to be able to bubble wrap them and protect <laughs> them so that they just don't have to struggle with some of these things that maybe we remember struggling with when we were younger as well. And I love on page 135 of your book, you said, avoidance strengthens anxiety. That sounds intense, I know, but I wholeheartedly believe it is true, which means she's just going to have to do the scary thing. When you make all the scary things go away for her, it sends a message to her that she can't handle them. Rescuing communicates that she needs rescuing, that the problems are too big and that she is too small, which is the opposite of what you want her to hear. This is really powerful. And I think it goes against how we naturally 
want to parent. Of course. Your child is in distress, and what else would you do but step in and help? So how do we approach this as parents when it's a situation that we really want to rescue them? I know, I know. And I mean, yes. And I think that's the problem is that the most well-intentioned parents sometimes mm-hmm. make the problem worse. And, and in that section, I think I talk about that the definition I came up with in all my research is that anxiety is an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of herself. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what we're talking about. When we pull them out, we're saying, yep, your definition's right. The problem's bigger and you're smaller and you can't do it. And and it's interesting because in, in researching for this teenage book, I've learned a lot more about anxiety, too. And and one of the things that it talked about is how for kids to work through their anxiety, they have to have their amygdala activated. Mm. If their amygdala is never activated and they're never elevated a little bit, they'll never learn to work through it, which is exactly what we're saying. The science backs up that idea that they have to do the scary thing. And so... I mean, we don't want to throw them in the deep end when they can't swim. So Mm -hmm. that's why we want to talk about really practical tools that are going to help. The breathing is always going to help when they're about to do something that's scary. Grounding, talking back to their worry monster. And then I think we want to have in there a a ladder of exposures. I mean, it's called exposure therapy where we gradually walk into the scary thing. So I have a little girl I'm meeting with right now that her scary thing was sleeping in her own bed and her... Mom was about to have another child and had to get that child out of her bed. She knew none of them would get any sleep if the child was still in her bed. And so what we did was when she spent, she was going to spend five nights in the bed, like kind of like on a mattress in a room outside of her parents' room. And then she was going to move one more room away on a mattress. And then she gradually was working her way into a room and she got bravery beads every time. And then what they did was they sat down together, which I think is a beautiful idea. They sat down together and they came up with a list of rewards. And so when she got to 25 bravery beads, she got to trade it in for something she was excited about. 50 was something even bigger. And then 100, I think they went to the water park at Opryland, you know, some Mm -hmm. huge thing. And so to help them, to help incentivize working toward the scary things, I think is really important. And they are, you know, kids are brilliant. They know. And so if you're saying you know, I'm afraid to spend the night out. Okay, let's talk about the steps towards spending a night out. And and maybe it starts with, you know, we have your grandparents come in and stay here with you and we go somewhere else. And then the next step is you go spend the night with your grandparents. And then the next step is you go spend the night with an aunt or, you know, you just kind of are gradually working towards whatever it is and you just celebrate like crazy along the way. And I think as they're learning, obviously they're going to realize I'm okay. And and the thing is, when we rob them of that, we rob them of that sense of pride in I really can do hard things mm. and kids can do hard things. And, and that's one of the things I keep trying to say to parents, even in the pandemic, is kids really are resilient. Mm. And doing hard things strengthens those muscles that they're going to need through adulthood. And so we want them to feel like they're capable. I have so many more questions that I want to ask you, (laughs) but I think that that is a perfect way for us to end. And so thank you so much, Sissy, for coming and for writing this book that I think is going to 
I know it already has, but I feel like it's, you know, the more hands that it's going to get into, the more lives that is going to change because we need this. We want to raise kids who are going to go out and be world changers, but they can't if they're living stifled in worry and anxiety. So I just encourage everyone who is listening, go get a copy of Raising Worry-Free Girls. Even if you don't have girls, like Sissy said, even if you don't even have kids, (laughs) I think the principles, we can all use them as adults as well. And she breaks them down in such bite-sized pieces that you can really resonate with. And so the subtitle is Helping Your Daughter Feel Braver, Stronger, and Smarter in an Anxious World. Raising Worry-Free Girls by Sissy Goff. We'll link to it in the show notes. Thank you so much, Sissy. Thank you, Crystal. As always, if you have any question on any topic you'd love for Jesse and I to answer on a future episode or you just have feedback or suggestions or you'd love for us to change something or do something different, we love to hear from you. We love your emails. And so you can send an email to crystal at moneysavingmom.com. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the Crystal Pain Show. Have a great week. And remember, you can't always choose your circumstances, but you can always choose your attitude. Thank you for joining us today. For more great resources, please visit crystalpain.com. 